I'd like for you to go ahead and turn with me to John chapter 16. Uh, John chapter 16, and as you do, here's the setting. Uh, If you're not familiar with this setting, um, it's actually the same setting we've been in for like six months. Um, But it's, uh, it's Jesus with his disciples on the last night before he dies. And uh, John, the apostle, has taken great pains to record everything that's taken place. Already Jesus has washed the disciples' feet. He has um, eaten his last meal. He's, uh, he's dismissed his betrayer. He has instituted the Lord's Supper, and he's spoken many last words to his disciples. And last words are lasting words. And it's as as if it's been emblazoned on the apostle John's heart and mind. And he wants to recall not only for the followers of Jesus in his day, but even in our day, what took place. We're moving to the conclusion of these words at the end of John chapter 16. In fact, John 17 is what's called the high priestly prayer, where Jesus is communing with his father. He's speaking to his father. And so really, this seems to be the last bit of conversation that Jesus has with his disciples. And so you can imagine the, the palpable sort of just experience and, and emotion that's there. And there's been this mix of emotions, I think, as we've covered these chapters, there's, there's both hope and anticipation for promises that Jesus gives to his disciples. And at the same time, there's trouble, there's, there's confusion, there's, there's sadness, and, and there's anxiety. And now we have this kind of crescendo of emotion here in John 16, where Jesus has been preparing the disciples for a lot of things, and now he's going to prepare them for something that he calls sorrow. This is not just any kind of sorrow. I mean, if you think about the disciples and where they're at, I mean, their best friend, the one that they spent almost every waking moment with over the past three years, the one that they saw heal the the blind and the, the deaf and the lame, the one that they, that even Jesus saw raised from So Jesus raised people from the dead. The one that said he was going to establish his kingdom on earth. That same one is going to be betrayed. And and there's, you can just imagine too what this this night is going to anticipate for them. I mean, kind of this pervading sort of nausea as they're experiencing what's going to happen, the kind of vertigo of events where they're just like, oh, there's, there's all these different things that are taking place. And, you know, the sense of guilt that awaits them when they run away. And then the misery that they see their Savior enduring as he's falsely accused, he's mocked, he's beaten, he's spit upon, he's stripped naked, and then he is nailed on a cross publicly exposed, naked, for all the world to see. You can kind of picture why Jesus would use the word sorrow in this text. Jesus is right to use that word. The disciples don't understand it all yet, but Jesus does. And so he wants to prepare them for how to deal with the sorrow that they're about to endure. But of course, it's not just for the disciples then— it's for Jesus' disciples now as well. Have you ever been in a place of great sorrow? 
You know, there's lots of cause for sorrow in our world. I mean, the loss of a friendship or, I mean, even we just, last week, the, the shooting in our own place here, the loss of loved ones, the financial strain, world events, there's sickness, there's pain. There's even this, sometimes our, like we can experience some sort of depression that just kind of comes over us in waves. The sorrow even over our own sin that we commit. Maybe you're in that place of sorrow right now, and you might even be so overwhelmed that it's even hard for you to move. Well, Jesus has some words for you and for me in our place of sorrow. And so I want to ask and invite you, if you are willing and able, to, to read with me from John chapter 16. Starting in verse 16, we're going to go through to the end of the chapter. Listen to the words of Jesus. He says this. He says, A little while and you will see me no longer, and again a little while and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, What is this that he says to us? A little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me. And because I'm going to the Father. So they were saying, What does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, Is this what you are asking yourselves, what I meant by saying, A little while, and you will not see me, and again, a little while, and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn to joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come, but she has delivered the baby. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also, you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive that your joy may be full. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, Ah! Now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. You may be seated. Pretty weighty words. Um, Today's sermon is entitled, Jesus and Our Sorrow. And the big idea is this, Jesus brings forth great blessing out of great sorrow. He brings forth great blessing out of the sorrow of the cross. And and I think an application right off the bat is Jesus brings forth great blessing out of the sorrow of the cross to help us in the midst of our 
sorrow. And there's four blessings that we're going to talk about that comes through the cross. The blessing of comfort, the blessing of life and joy, the blessing of access to the Father, and then the blessing of peace. So first, through the cross, Jesus brings the blessing of comfort. You start out in this text, and you, you can just kind of picture the disciples. They are confused. They're like, okay, wait, okay, a little while, you'll see me no longer. And again, a little while, you will see me. I don't understand what you're talking about. And, uh, and it's, it's, you can just kind of feel this confused sort of experience that's, that they're, they're, they're going through. They're troubled. They're lost. And they conclude with, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he's talking about. Now, if we know what it means, you know, in a little while, Jesus is going to go and he's going to die. And then a little while, Jesus is going to rise from the dead. And so they're going to see him again. But picture the disciples right now. They are confused. They don't understand. And it's, it's one thing for us to endure sorrow, but it's another thing when we don't know what God is up to, when we don't know what he's doing. But in that place, these next two words are really crucial. Verse 19, Jesus knew. Two very simple words, but two very important words. Jesus knew. And I love the fact that when they are confused, Jesus doesn't rebuke them. He doesn't, you know, tell them you guys are idiots. (laughs) He doesn't chide them. He doesn't leave them clueless. He comes alongside of them. He comes next to them. He patiently and graciously moves in. He does so discreetly. He doesn't make it exactly clear what he's talking about because he knows that the sorrow would be even too overwhelming for them if they were to hear it now. But at the same time, Jesus makes it really clear. A few verses later, he says, but one one day you will be in the know. Verse 25, I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. And so Jesus here is referring to the resurrection when he's going to appear to them and he's going to tell them many things about who he is and what he's done and helping to make plain the scriptures, but even more so, he's referring to Pentecost, where the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus comes and lives inside of the disciples to bring understanding, to help them to know what is really going on. As we learned last week, the Helper is going to guide them into all truth. And so that can be a real comfort to us. The fact that Jesus knows. He knows things that are going to take place before they take place. Jesus knows our our sorrows. He knows our pain. He knows our struggles. He knows the instances where we're going to really experience that before it takes place. And that can be a real comfort to us. But I would say the greatest comfort in our sorrows isn't that Jesus knows factually what's going to take place. He knows experientially. Jesus knows sorrow because he is the man of sorrows. He is intimately acquainted with grief. 
He's not just a friend who is near. He's a friend who has been there. He knows what it's like to experience grief and hardship and pain and suffering and abandonment. And as the writer of Hebrews writes, says, we've got a friend who sympathizes with all of our weaknesses so that we can draw near. You know, our um, redemption group ministry, one of the things that we desire to do, and really I think this is, this is the goal of the Christian life in general, is to encourage people to know that they have a friend in Jesus who knows them, who loves them, who understands them, and who welcomes them into his presence. It's one thing for a friend to kind of know the facts of your story. It's another thing to know a friend who has actually experienced what you've experienced. And so we can be honest in our pain, in our sorrow, in our struggle. Uh, There's a man by the name of Joseph Scriven. Uh, He was born in Ireland in 1819. Lived a pretty good life early on. Went to college. There he met a girl by... Um, uh, I don't remember her name, <laughs> but, but so they met, they got to know each other pretty well. Um, he proposed to her and they were planning on getting married. And the day before their wedding, she fell from her horse while crossing a bridge and over into the river band, she fell and drowned in the water below. And Joseph stood helplessly on the other side, watching In an effort to overcome his sorrow, he kind of wandered around, and eventually he crossed the Atlantic Ocean and landed in a small town called Port Hope, Canada. And uh, he became highly regarded by the people there in the area. He would care for people who were in need. And he met another woman. This woman's name is Elisa Roche, and and he fell in love with her, and they had plans to be married. However, tragedy reared its ugly head once again, and she died of pneumonia before they could wed. And so as you can imagine, I mean, Joseph was just heart-stricken. And he labored in Port Hope among impoverished widows and sick people because they were people that he felt could, he could connect with in a deep way. He often served for no wages, and he would even offer um, his own clothes with those that were less fortunate than himself. And on one occasion, Joseph became sick, and a friend who was visiting with him discovered a poem that was right next to his bed, and he asked who had written it. And so Joseph Scriven said, The Lord and I did it between us. That poem was entitled, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. I'll read to you uh, a couple of stanzas here. I'm sure you've probably got the tune in your head. What a friend we have in Jesus, all our griefs and sins to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear, all because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Have we trials and temptations? Is there trouble anywhere? We should never be discouraged. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Can we find a friend so faithful? Who will all our sorrows share? Jesus knows our every weakness. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Jesus says, I know. I know your sorrows. Take them to me. I have a question for you. Where are you currently tempted to hide, to ignore, to drown out? 
to minimize, to mask, to numb your pain and your sorrow. Jesus says, I am a friend who sympathizes with all of your weakness. Draw near to me. That's the first blessing that comes through the cross. Comfort, so we can draw near. The second, through the cross, Jesus brings the blessing of life and joy. Again, this this sounds pretty bleak. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful. I mean, it's one thing to go through sorrow, but it's another thing to have the world rejoice when you are experiencing that pain. And Jesus prepares the disciples. That's what's going to take place tomorrow. Jesus is very, very honest. He's not hiding behind some simple platitudes. Oh, I'm going to make everything okay. He's really being honest and saying, hey, this is, this is going to be scary stuff. It's not a very bright picture of the disciples' future. But as we know, that is not the end of the story. Jesus brings life out of death. He brings joy out of sorrow. And then he gives this beautiful illustration. And you guys, I'm sure when you're hearing it about childbirth, you're both, <laughs> both like, oh, the sorrow. But the joy, right? I remember for, for me, um, with, our, with our first, uh, I was quite nervous. Now, I shouldn't have been nervous as much as my wife was, obviously. Uh, I don't know the pain that she went through, but I do know this, that when I see pain, it becomes, uh, it becomes distracting and overwhelming. And I think of uh, my friend, uh, David Webb. Uh, he was a friend of mine, and uh, he had ACL surgery, and so I was in the room kind of visiting him after the surgery, and the nurse started unwrapping his bandage. And, uh, and then she's like, hey, could you hold his leg while I unwrap the bandage? And I was like, sure, sure, sure. So I hold, un- I hold, hold his leg, and then as she's unwrapping the bandage, and it's getting closer and closer to the wound, the nurse says, are you okay? I'm like, sure. <laughs> and then she unwraps it a little bit more. <laughs> Boom, I'm out. I'm out. Uh, and thankfully, the nurse catches me right before my head hits the, hits the floor. And I don't know how long it was, 5, 10, 15 seconds later. I'm not sure how long it was, but I do know this. From the time that I went out to the time that I woke up, my roommate was laughing because I woke up and I did see this. Ah! <laughs> he was like, Scott, you made me laugh in the midst of my pain. Uh, and so anyway, that's the memory that I have emblazoned. And so the next memory that I'm thinking about with my wife is that she's going to endure this great pain and I'm going to pass out again. I was freaking out the whole time leading up to the birth. And, uh, but here's the amazing thing. Um, you, you know, you, you begin to see the beauty in the midst of pain. Begin to see joy in the midst of sorrow. And I remember Abigail being born and, and, you know, I'm crying and Julia's crying and yet we're crying tears of joy. And Abigail's name means father's source of joy. That's a beautiful thing what God does in the midst of pain and hardship, how he brings joy through the sorrow. And Jesus says, that's the way it's going to be for you, disciples. On resurrection day, your sorrow will turn into great joy. And I love the fact that he says, and I will see you. 
It's almost like Jesus is pursuing the disciples. He's saying, I want to see you as soon as I rise from the dead. I want to let you know that I have conquered death, that I have brought life. And this is what happens to us too, right? In our sorrow over our sin, Jesus brings joy. We feel death over our sin, and yet Jesus brings about life. He transforms our sorrows into joy. And this is the way that God always works. Think of Moses and 40 years in the wilderness just watching some sheep over and over and over again. And he thinks the last part of his story is murder, the murder of an Egyptian. That's not the end of his story. And for the next 40 years, he experiences great ministry. Or Abraham and Sarah, barrenness for 99 years. And then God gives birth, brings birth to, um, to Abraham and Sarah. And they name, his, they, na- they name him Isaac, right? Which means laughter. Kent Hughes says this. He says, all our sorrows are pregnant with potential joy. All our sorrows are pregnant with potential joy. The cross gives us hope that God can bring life and joy from any pain or sorrow. You know, it's one thing to go through suffering and hardship, but it's a whole other thing when you don't have hope. And Jesus says, have hope in the midst of your sorrow. I was thinking about this with uh, just, it was jotting down yesterday some stories of people who have experienced life in the midst of pain and joy, in the midst of sorrow. And I was thinking about a, a little boy uh, with, with developmental needs and put into the foster care system. And, um, and then those parental rights are revoked. And then we've got a family who takes that little boy in and says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring you into my family. The pain and the sorrow that you've experienced, I, I'm going to bring you in so that you can experience joy. Think about a mom who's been praying for her adult sons for years and years. She writes on those connect cards in the back of the seat in front of you. She always writes down her prayer requests there. Just this past Tuesday, she wrote, my son went to church for the first time. Think about a dad who lost his job Um, But it was at a time that his daughter was really wandering from the faith. And because of him not having to work at that point, he was able to spend lots of time studying the scriptures with her and answering her questions and talking with her. And now she's coming back to Jesus. Think about a woman who was abused. But God has now used her to minister to so many other women who have also experienced abuse. Think about a, a, a boy who was, uh, experienced an awful childhood. Dad who wasn't present, experienced uh, abuse himself and didn't even know his father and, and he came to faith in Christ. Um, and now his desire is to be a godly husband and a godly, hu- uh, godly father for his wife and his children. That's why we, that's why we can have hope It's because God brings about joy through our sorrow. God brings life in the midst of death and chaos. And so we pray, as verse 24 says, we pray asking that we will receive that our joy may be 
full. Now, we also know that we won't experience complete joy until we see Jesus face to face. But, but we can trust that God will bring about good in the midst of our pain. So don't lose hope for Oaks. Don't lose hope. Verse 22 confirms that the disciples' joy cannot be taken away. They're about to go through some really difficult things, even after Jesus' resurrection. They're all going to be put to death because of their faith in Jesus. And, and yet, even though they're going to go through many sorrows, Jesus was enough for them. And I can almost imagine, you know, they're, they're, they're seeing Jesus as they're enduring this pain. And they, they see Jesus loving them and see Jesus in his resurrected form. And they know that everything is going to be okay in the end. All our sorrows are pregnant with potential joy. For Oaks, the blessing of life and joy can give us hope in the midst of pain and and sorrow. Through the cross, Jesus also brings the blessing of access to the Father. Verse 23 says, in that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. And then again in verse 26, in that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. For the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. Jesus is making it really clear here that there is, a, there is something different that happens once Jesus dies and rises from the dead. He says, now you can pray in my name. You know, in the past, the priests had to not only make a sacrifice for the people, but they also had to offer that sacrifice before the Lord behind the veil while the people waited outside. He would sprinkle blood on the veil and on the horns of the altar of incense so that God would hear the prayers offered through the priest. But Jesus says, I'm going to bring my blood to the holy place to ascend to the Father so that you may hear your prayers. The Father can hear your prayers no longer as an outsider. My priestly work is so perfect that you can bring your prayers directly to the Father. You have direct access to him. And so when we pray in Jesus's name, there's, there's something special that we are communicating here. Now, this is not just kind of an add-on at the end. In Jesus' name, amen. And then we ask for whatever we want. <laughs> That's not what Jesus is communicating here. He's saying, in Jesus' name, when you pray in my name, you are praying based on my death and my resurrection, that you have access to the Father. It's not your, your own sufficiency. It's not your own worthiness. You are coming on the basis of Jesus's merits, on Jesus's perfect work for you on the cross. And so every time we pray in Jesus' name, we say, thank you, Jesus. 
Thank you, Jesus, for your death for me. But not only that, we, when we pray in Jesus' name, we are praying in correspondence with his character and his purposes. Oswald Chambers says we pray in Jesus' nature. So the idea here is that we want to become more and more one with Jesus and his desires and his purposes and his character. And the more that we do that, the more our prayers will be answered and the more that our joy will be full. Here's one other thing that I think is really amazing here. When we come to the Father, we are not coming to a Father who is angry with us or a Father who is, has a scowl on his face. We are coming to a Father, Jesus says, a Father himself who loves you in verse 27. So in other words, this is not Jesus pleading our case before the Father and saying, Father, please, please love these people that I've died for. That is not what's going on. The Father loves us and he sends Jesus to die for us. It's the Father initiating the work of the Son rather than Jesus kind of convincing the Father to love us. Charles Spurgeon says it this way, He says, the father himself, not moved by the importunities of his pleading son, but himself of his own accord loves you. O father God, how have you sometimes been slandered as though you were backward to love us and your son must necessarily persuade you? No, it is not so. God loved his people and therefore he sent his son to redeem them. He so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Christ is not the cause of divine love, but the sweetest and best fruit of it. The father himself loves you. When we are going through the midst of sorrow, we can be assured that the Father loves us. And that is what carried Jesus through his sorrow. What does he say a little bit later? He says, I'm not alone, for the Father is with me. That's what carried Jesus through all of his pain and hardship and suffering. And we're going to see more of that in John 17 with the high priestly prayer. Jesus is resting in the Father's love in the midst of great sorrow and pain. I love this too because Jesus communicates. He says, for the Father himself loves you. But when does he say this? It's right before the disciples are going to scatter. Now, Jesus does confirm. He says, hey, you know, you do believe in God, verse 27. But a little bit later on, he says, but do you really believe? He's saying, hey, you believe, but you don't fully believe. You're not perfect in your belief, but it doesn't change the fact that my father loves you. So God's love for us is not based on a perfect faith or a perfect obedience. God's love for us is just simply because he loves us. And that can give us great assurance in the midst of our sorrow. Even when our faith is weak, God's love for us does not change. And here's the most amazing thing of all. Jesus says, even when you're going to leave me alone, I am not alone for the Father is with me. And that is so true. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he's praying sweats of, like they're like drops of blood. And, and in preparation for the cross, he's, he's, just, he's just, I'm sure, relating to his father and asking his father to carry him during this time. But then, 
on the cross, there is only one time when Jesus does not address his father as father. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, I don't, it's a mystery as to what exactly is going on here. We don't know what this sort of loss was like. But clearly, Jesus experiences forsakenness from his father. The wrath of God is poured out upon his son. Why? Why was Jesus forsaken? So that we would never be forsaken. Why was Jesus left alone? So that we would never be alone. Why was Jesus abandoned? So that we would never be abandoned. Jesus loved us so much that he was willing to endure the pain and suffering of the cross and even to experience the pain of his only father being poured out, the, the, the punishment for our sin is being poured out upon Jesus so that we would never have to experience that. So in the midst of your sorrow, Jesus says, rest in the love of the father. R. Brown says it this way. He says, Jesus' necessary role in bringing men to the Father and the Father to men is to set up so intimate a relationship of love in and through Jesus that Jesus cannot be considered intervening. So it's almost this sense in which, you know, Jesus is joining the hands of us with the hand of the Father, and he kind of gets out of the way. Closeness, intimacy with the Father is what Jesus provides to us. That is good news in the midst of our sorrow. So four oaks rest in the love of the Father in the midst of your pain and suffering. Last but not least, through the cross, Jesus brings the blessing of peace. Verse 33, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. I love that last sentence, I have overcome the world. That is in the past It hasn't yet been worked out in time, but it's all been planned out from eternity past. It's as good as done. Jesus says, I am in charge. I I am in complete control. There is absolute and ultimate victory. I will overcome the world. I will overcome sin. I will overcome Satan. I will overcome pain and hardship. I will overcome death. I will overcome it all. And the victory that I have accomplished is available to you if you put your faith in me. John Newton, he says, as surely as he overcame and triumphed once for you, so surely you that love his name shall triumph in him too. His victory is our victory. His triumph is our triumph. 1 John 5 says that we are overcomers through our faith in Jesus Christ. And what's the result? What's the goal? Peace. I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. Peace in the midst of sorrow and pain is a very important and precious thing. And Jesus says, you may have it. 
It's going to seem like the world's winning, but no, I've won. I've won the victory, and in the end, I am going to bring perfect peace to you. Uh, Cornelius Plattinger, he talks about the idea of peace. Peace, a lot of times we think is just an, um, kind of a, a sense of you know, connection or, or rest with God, and that's very true, but there's so much more to it than that. So um, this is what he says. He says, in the Bible, shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness and delight, a rich state of affairs that inspires joyful wonder as its creator and savior opens doors and welcomes the creatures in whom he delights. Shalom, in other words, is the way things are supposed to be. Think of the Garden of Eden, the perfect shalom, the perfect place where we enjoy perfection with God, and we enjoy perfect relationships with one another. We enjoy perfect relationship with the world. And Jesus says, I have come so that you may have peace, you may have wholeness, you may have delight, and I'm giving you tastes of that now in preparation for us to experience it in its fullness when I return. It's as good as done. Jesus is the sovereign king, and one day all sorrow will be gone, all tears will be wiped away, all brokenness will be made whole, and all of our experience forever and ever and ever is peace. And so he says, take heart, or be of good cheer, or be of good courage. I've got it. I've won, and I'm coming back. So Four Oaks, Jesus, may Jesus be our best friend and bring comfort to us. So when he does that, we can draw near to him. May Jesus be our risen Savior who brings life and joy so that we don't lose hope. May Jesus be our high priest who brings direct access to the love of the Father so that we can rest in him. And may Jesus be our sovereign king who brings peace both now and forever so that we would take heart and be of good courage. There's a last verse of what a friend we have in Jesus. And it's actually omitted from pretty much all the songbooks, but uh, I think it's a great way to end this morning. So I want you to listen to these words that Joseph Scriven penned a couple hundred years ago. He says, Blessed Savior, thou hast promised, thou wilt all our burdens bear. May we ever, Lord, be bringing all to thee in earnest prayer. Soon in glory, bright unclouded, there will be no need for prayer. Rapture, praise, and endless worship will be our sweet portion there. Our temporary sorrow will lead to permanent joy. Our prayers will be turned into forever praise, and we will be able to see Jesus face to face, both when we first see him and then on into forever so that we can enjoy rapture, praise, and endless worship and experience his sweet portion there. That is good news. Let's pray.